0: well good morning everybody uh, and thank you uh, for joining us today uh, at the Atlantic Council uh, my name's Dick Morningstar know a lot of you, obviously, uh, and I'm the founding director of our new Global Energy Center here at the Atlantic Council. Uh, I guess at some point I'll stop saying it's new, but it's only been since January. We've done a bunch since then, though but i'm pleased to welcome you here uh, for uh today's event uh which is being held in recognition of european climate diplomacy day uh and it's really uh, i feel and i know that everybody here at the council feels uh, really feels honored that the uh, eu delegation would want to work with us uh to do this uh, to do this event today uh, this is also uh the third event in the Uh, Global Energy Center's Road to Paris Climate Series which focuses on the priorities and challenges of reaching a global climate agreement leading up to the COP 21 negotiations in Paris this December. Uh, Today's issue is a little bit different but critically I think critically important and it's too often ignored uh, which is the relationship between uh, climate change, uh, and global security, and the h- huge number of areas where they, uh, where they intersect. Uh, we have an outstanding group of experts here to discuss these critical issues. Uh, And uh, the way it'll work, today's panel will be preceded by introductory remarks by uh, David O'Sullivan, the EU ambassador, and then Ambassador Gérard Arrault uh, will make the keynote remarks, the French ambassador to the U.S. Then Daniel Chu, uh, who is uh, the deputy director of the Brent Scowcroft Center, will moderate uh, the discussion with uh, and introduce the panelists at that time. Uh, Daniel, uh, for those of you who who don't know him, uh, is formerly deputy assistant secretary of defense for strategy and force development, uh, and he led the work both in 2010 and 2014 uh, on the quadrennial defense reviews, and then the. 2012 Defense Strategic Guidance. So he's been intimately involved in uh, the issues relating climate and security. Uh, I'm honored to introduce uh, Ambassador O'Sullivan, who will then introduce after his remarks Ambassador Aro. Uh, I've known uh, Ambassador O'Sullivan since 1999 uh, when I was in uh, Brussels. Uh, if I went through his whole biography and all of the things that he's done with respect to the EU uh, and it, we'd be here till 2:30 this afternoon uh, so so I I won't I won't do that um, but I will say when I first uh, knew the ambassador he was the chef de cabinet for uh, uh, Romano Prodi, who was then president of the Commission he was then secretary general of the council He was DG of trade he's the guy who really Set up the External Action Service uh, and is really, a, you know, at this point, uh, uh, a live legend uh, in Brussels and uh, now here uh, as uh, the EU ambassador to the United States. And then he will introduce Ambassador Aro, who we're obviously very pleased uh, to have. So, turn the floor over to you.
1: Well, thank you, thank you very much. Dick. You, you promised you weren't going to read out my CV and then gave a sort of slightly abridged version of it. But uh, uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, happy Climate Diplomacy Day. Uh, this is indeed Uh, uh, an effort by the the European Union to raise consciousness uh, across the globe, quite literally, uh, of the seriousness of climate change issue and the consequences it has for us all. Uh, And uh, today, uh, all over the world, we're organizing different kinds of events. Um, uh, I'll be on the the hill later engaging with with staffers there. uh, And we're also organizing events in New York and San Francisco, uh, indeed dealing with the theme of of this morning's event. And I'd like to thank very warmly the Atlantic Council. Uh, You say you're honored to work with us, but we're delighted that you're working with us and uh, delighted that you've taken upon yourselves to uh, organize uh, this event. And I'd like to thank you, Dick, personally for your great leadership in in fostering closer cooperation between uh, the EU and the United States in in energy and particularly the climate dialogue. Uh, I'd like to particularly thank our panelists today who've come from uh, quite a distance, uh, Tom Burke, uh, Dennis Tensler, and Major General Manuri Azam, who have traveled quite a lot to join and contribute to this debate, we're very very grateful for that. Um, We know that climate change is a a challenging issue, uh, and we know that it's it's still an issue which uh, divides opinion here in the United States, but also globally, particularly between the developed and the developing developing world, uh, who understandably say that when we in the developed world talk about climate change and the need for everyone to, to contribute, we are of course asking people to solve a problem. For which we were largely responsible through our own uh, emissions and and the the path to development that we chose. And we're now asking others to join with us in in changing the path of that. Uh, And I understand that for developing countries in particular, they do not wish us this to inhibit their ability to prosper, to grow, and to develop. And that's the the squaring of the circle that that we have to manage. Uh, And the conference which we will have in Paris at the end of uh, this year will be hugely important in defining global cooperation on climate change in the coming period. It will probably not provide all of the answers, but hopefully a platform and a process on which we can build and go forward in finding ways of international cooperation and individual action by countries or groups of countries to combat climate change. This morning, uh, we, I, I, I love a, a catchy title, and we're talking about the, the next battleground. Uh, I sincerely hope that climate change will not be the battleground, but we do know that uh, over and above the environmental aspects, the uh, the, the, the changes which, which the climate change will bring, uh, there are also potential tensions that will flow from that, particularly when we know that the countries most affected by climate change will precisely be the poorest and the most vulnerable. And when you combine that with uh, other issues such as demand for scarce resources, uh, urban uh, environmental degradation, uh, unequal economic development, population growth and movement, migration, uh, and rapid urbanization, this does have the capacity to generate new security threats and risks. And this is, I think, something that we also uh, need to think about uh, as we as we look forward. Uh, so I think this is a very important discussion, and I'm absolutely delighted that my good friend and colleague, Ambassador Gerard Arrault is going to make the introductory remarks. Nobody better placed than him as one of the most experienced French diplomats uh, to describe to you uh, how uh, France, as the presidency of the meeting in in, in December, uh, sees these issues, uh, and how we all, I think, uh, offer our strong support to this very challenging presidency challenge of making a success of this conference uh, with all of the conflicting pressures and tensions that will be there. And I now ask uh, Gerard please to come forward and make the introductory remarks. Thank you very much indeed. good
2: morning and thank you very much uh, david thank you very much ambassador morningstar and um, i'm a bit destabilized because you referred to a battleground and uh, this week i prefer not to speak about battles and uh, you know especially tomorrow uh, which will be as you know the 200th anniversary of a battle i forgot the name of <laughs> actually uh, the battle I, f- I remember is the battle of the 14th of june you know, i think we celebrated the Battle of Friedland, the victory of Napoleon on Russia and Prussia. You know, that's the anniversary I want to remember. (laughs) That's that's a good battle. Thank you. Uh, We are, uh, of course, we are delighted to associate the French embassies to this uh, European Climate Diplomacy Day and uh, that we will celebrate in nearly 60 countries. As David said, Towards the end of this year, France will host the 21st United Nations uh, Climate Conference. What is the aim? It's to reach a universal agreement that will limit the rise in average global temperature to 2 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial period by the end of the century. We, We think there is a real hope for success. As the president of the conference, the COP21, The role of France will be to facilitate a a compromise between 196 parties. In the negotiations, the differences among countries that are at distinct stages of development necessitate differences of approach. Yes, strong common interests unite us. And one example is the impact of climate change on our shared security. The climate has always posed threats to security. Climate disruptions upset the full range of economic and social equilibrium, and it therefore threatens countries' internal security. I don't know if you read, I, I read a, a great book called, I guess, The Global Crisis, written by uh, the, an excellent, I think, British historian, Geoffrey Parker, about the climate crisis of the, 18th, of the 17th century. And it shows when there, are, when there is a climate disruption. And there was a climate disruption at the end of 17th century. It's called the Little Ice Age. You know, it has incredible consequences on the, 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 the life of the countries. In France, for instance, historians have shown that the disastrous weather in 1788 caused a food crisis that contributed to the outbreak of the French Revolution. And by an incredible coincidence, I'm not sure it's a coincidence, the price of bread in France has has reached its highest level in the 18th century, the 14th of July, 1789. More recently, in 2005, Hurricane Katrina wrecked a vogue that led to disturbances in civil order and the deployment of the army on American soil. Beyond borders, climate change can stoke international conflict over the control of vital and increasingly scarce resources. For instance, water. Examples of this include the tensions among Egypt, Sudan, and Ethiopia over the Nile and its tributaries, between Israel and its neighbors over the Jordan River basin, and among Turkey, Syria, and Iraq over the Euphrates. Another source of insecurity is the massive displacement of people. By making certain areas uninhabitable, droughts and rising waters levels uproot entire populations They often find refuge in regions that are already overpopulated, creating or exacerbating tensions among countries or groups. When uprooted, such populations can can fall prey to radical movements. This is what happened in the Sahel in the late 70s, when extreme droughts contributed to the exodus of many Tuareg towards Libya, many of whom then enrolled by Gaddafi in, in his Islamic religion. A trace of this was found in the destabilization of Mali that led to France's military intervention in 2013. Threats to peace and security will increase in both number and intensity if the rise of temperatures exceeds 2 degrees Celsius. And this rise will happen if we fail to act or take insufficient action. A climate-disrupted planet will be an unstable one. And again, there is nothing abstract about this risk. In Egypt, an increase of 50 centimeters, or almost 20 inches, in the sea level, would cause millions of people to flee the Nile Delta with security consequences for the entire region. Increased desertification of unstable areas, such as the Sahel, again, would foster the growth of criminal networks and armed terrorist groups, which are already thriving there. Similarly, climate disruption would exacerbate the threats that are currently concentrated in regions from Niger to the Persian Gulf, this arc of crisis is also, and it's not a coincidence, an arc of droughts. These facts should lead us to two conclusions. First, it's essential to limit global warming. Second, we need to reduce the exposure of people to the damage caused by climate disruption. In particular, by protecting coastlines from rising water levels and by organizing more effectively the management of water in dry areas. In the language of international negotiation, this is called adaptation, a topic that has not always received the attention it deserves. Adaptation must be a central focus of the agreement that is to be reached at the end of 2015. The massive use of fossil fuels, coal, oil, gas, has accelerated conflicts ever since they have been central to our economies. Fossil fuel deposits are very unevenly distributed, leading to dependency, jealousy, and often violent competition. It shouldn't be forgotten that control of coal resources on both sides of the Rhine was a core issue in the conflicts between France and Germany. It is thanks to the European coal and steel community and to the reduced dependence on coal that these rivalries have disappeared. Today, at the very gates of Europe, control of natural gas supply routes is also at the center of conflicts that threaten to destabilize our continent, as demonstrated by the gas war between Russia and Ukraine in 2009. In Asia, exploitation of the hydrocarbon-rich seabed and securing of supply routes for these resources contribute much to the tension in this region. We need a global clean energy community to free us from dependence on fossil fuels and the related risk of conflict. Reducing carbon intensity improves security, energy security and security in general as it equalizes access to energy. A country that develops its own solar or wind energy production takes nothing from anyone. The light and wind that it uses are not only renewable, they belong to all. We should not underestimate the major contributions it could make to peace and security in the future, especially as the resources of fossil fuels are reduced. It follows that it is essential for COP21 to provide, first and foremost to developing countries, the practical means to increase access to energy, while reducing the carbon intensity of economies. This would decrease considerably the risk of fossil fuels becoming a cause of conflict in the coming decades. Helping countries reduce their exposure to climate damage and democratizing energy access while reducing carbon intensity are two imperatives for our fundamental security needs. Aligning all of our interests around them should allow us to reach a universal agreement. If we want to achieve this objective, and doing so is essential for humanity, we will need everyone to contribute. If you allow me now to go on the way the French are trying or preparing uh, the, COP, the COP21, um, I, I, really, I want to say first, we have less than 200 days uh, to go until the Paris conference. And we have very little time left. The good news, and I think in comparison uh, with what happened in Copenhagen, is that there is a general mobilization of all the parties of all the, the, the countries. Co- contributions are being published, financial actors are getting increasingly active, and in a sense, uh, each day, we, we get closer to the agreement that we need in, in, in Paris. I'm not going to, to enter into the, the, the different stages in the, in the, in the negotiation. We had uh, uh, the intermediate negotiations in, in Bonn, Uh, The two two co-chairs are going to restructure the current project and present a more concise and clearer text. There will be two negotiations uh, sessions, August and October. We had the very, I think, uh, very bold and very substantial declaration of the G7. G7, And I think uh, we are very grateful to the German presidency for for this very uh, substantial result. On our side, we, are, we will support the formal negotiation process by organizing informal negotiation at both the negotiation negotiator's and minister's level. And we are thinking of, uh, uh, we are considering a meeting in New York in September uh, during the United Nations General Assembly uh, so that the heads of state and government could give a clear political direction. Because if there is an agreement in Paris, it must be built before uh, before Paris. But I want to to add also that we shouldn't consider the COP21 only under the angle of a United Nations uh, agreement. Uh, Because the the climate change uh, is not only, and maybe not mainly, actually, uh, uh, something for the governments to, to decide. Uh, We need, and actually it's it's happening every day, we need the mobilization of all the stakeholders, which means the mobilization, of course, the local authorities uh, and the the territories and the the cities, Uh, the mobilization also of the business community, which is uh, also quite important, and more generally, the mobilization of the civil society. I'm traveling a lot in, uh, in the U.S. this day, especially to speak about uh, the preparation of the COP21. And I should think that I'm extremely reassured every time I cross the Beltway, uh, because suddenly, uh, you know, uh, you have the impression that all these uh, silly debates that we hear about what is climate change, whether there is a climate change, you know, really, uh, you have the impression that this debate is only existing in the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal, basically that uh, when you go, when you meet the mayors, uh, you know, the mayors, uh, recently I met the mayors of Chicago, of Houston, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Miami Beach, Uh, uh, all of them are saying we have to act and actually we are acting. When you meet Republican uh, uh, mayors, they don't speak about climate change, they speak about energy effectiveness, energy effectiveness, which is exactly the same thing, which has the the same result. When you go, you visit, you know, in Chicago, I was visiting the, the aquarium, you know, not because I love, uh, I love fish. It's simply because the aquarium of Chicago is engaged into an incredible uh, program of energy effectiveness. I visited in Chicago the Roosevelt University campus, which is totally, you know, really uh, carbon free in terms of its emission. You know, this country, as you know, the U.S., it's an incredible, uh, creative country and this country is, mobi- is mobilizing uh, for, uh, for, for action, and, and it's very, very exciting. And what is important in Paris is that at the end of the conference, we should, have, we should hear, coming from Paris, a unified message. Unified message, the states, of course, the governments, Uh, but also a message from local authorities. There will be a summit uh, organized by the mayor of Paris, a summit of cities, and by Michael Bloomberg, who is as a special representative of the UN Secretary General, is doing a great job for mobilizing the the, the cities. The cities will publish, you know, a program of action and how they, they want to reach their goals, how they want to work together. And we'll, we'll have also the, the, the business community. You know, uh, when, you know, whenever you you know, you, I met also a lot of CEO, and, and, you know, really, and they tell me, they said, of course, we want to, to we are engaged into uh, energy uh, effectiveness. Uh, not only for the sake of the humankind, but because it makes economic sense. I think a lot of our politicians are not understanding that actually the, the, the technology is there, or it's very close to be, uh, to be there, and it makes an economic sense. And that's the message that we would want to have from Paris. The message w- will be, we are serious. We, the world, you know, I'm not going to sing, but we, the world, we are serious about low carbon economy. And we are serious about low-carbon economy, not only because it's good for 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 the, the future of our children and grandchildren, but also because it makes economic sense. And that's that, that's what we are going to try to have in Paris. In Paris, you know, as you know, these COP are a circus. There will be 40,000 people. We are obliged to to, to organise that in a, in a hair, in an airfield uh, close to to Paris. There will be a village, there will be organized, there will be a gallery, so that we can show the, the technological uh, breakthrough, uh, the technological solutions to the, to the problem. There will be a meeting between the leaders and also uh, the business community. There was a summit with, on business and finance and climate change in Paris uh, in May, and, and again, we had an incredible, uh, incredible positive response and I'm really a lot of corporations are, are calling us and saying, how can we, how can we contribute? And, you know, and in a sense, our main challenge, maybe it's not mainly to have uh, you know, the two degrees Celsius uh, convention, our main challenge would be to, to unify all these voices, every, all the voices to have a common, uh, a, a common message. It has to be common, but it's not the same one for everybody. There is no one-size-fits-all. There is no top-down approach. It's totally normal that a country, a a poor, enclaved country, uh, doesn't take the same commitment than France or Germany or or the United States. Uh, But it's very important that everybody is really saying, we are going into the same direction. And I want to express our gratitude to the uh, Obama administration, which is extremely helpful uh, in the, on the international scene. And by the example, are, the administration uh, is is is, given, is giving. And I want to express also my, my gratitude for all the, the way all the countries are, are are mobilized. We have also to think uh, in in a sort of strategic terms, because okay, we take an agreement in 2015. But we know that in two, three, four, five years, the technology will have changed. There will be new technology. Uh, the situation, the economic situation also will have changed. So it means that we are engaged into a long-term, uh, it's a long-term process. Paris won't be the end of the road. Uh, Paris will be on the stage in, in a long road. It's simply that we have to take uh, 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 the, the good direction. and we will be able to do it only if. Uh, everybody is, is on board. Everybody considers it's a common, uh, common endeavor. Everybody has its own uh, interest. Uh, they are, they are quite, quite legitimate. So we need you. Um, we need you first to make this uh, conference a, a French success. Uh, but as always, explaining whatever the result, it will be a French success. You can, you can trust French, you can trust French diplomacy. You know, really. Uh, I won't. I won't read the Wall Street Journal the day after. You know, it's very simple. <laughs> Thank you very much.
3: So good morning, everybody, and uh, on behalf of the Scowcroft Center for International Security, let me uh, join Ambassador Morningstar in the Global Energy Center in welcoming you to the Atlantic Council. Uh, We're both very pleased uh, that you've all joined us, and I'm extremely pleased to uh, be here with you all, particularly uh, on the event uh, of this uh, EU Climate Diplomacy uh, Day. Uh, I believe very strongly in the need to have uh, a more substantive dialogue on climate change issues and uh, events like the Climate Diplomacy Day I think are a perfect way uh, to engage in as particular to engage across a number of different countries uh, on this issue at the same time to, to raise this uh, raise awareness uh, of this issue. Uh, as you know uh, the panel and I uh, are here in particular to talk to you about this nexus between uh, climate change and security something that you've been hearing a lot of in particular uh, here in Washington and in particular uh, of late. Uh, my former job, as, uh, as Ambassador Morningstar mentioned, is deputy assist- was Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, for strategy. Normally, when I tell that to people, the next question they ask me is, so what do you really do uh, in the Pentagon, which is a pretty legitimate uh, question. And what I try to say in more descriptive terms is I do long-term planning in the Pentagon. Strategy is about long-term planning. Uh, I did that for the Office of the Secretary of Defense in our policy side. Uh, And long term planning means thinking about the future, means thinking about what the context is we're going to have to deal with in the future, and how the Department of Defense can be best prepared for that. So, no kidding, we looked at climate change uh, in that context. Climate change. affects that context. Climate change is part of that context. So it is something that we did on a regular basis. It is something, by the way, that was not new. Uh, I began at the beginning of the Obama administration in 2009, but I picked up work that was already underway in terms of long-term planning that was looking at the effects of changing weather patterns uh, and changing climate overall on things like incidents of uh, natural disasters, incidents of food and water scarcity, and obviously, we thought Hard about the implications of that uh, for instability, mass migration, uh, et cetera, as you heard the ambassador uh, mentioning uh, earlier. So I was very pleased to play a role uh, in OSD policy, leading our work, thinking about the nexus between climate change uh, and national security in that regard. Uh, not as a political issue, not even per se, as an administration issue, but frankly, as an issue for long-term planning, as many other governments local, state, many other entities, private sector, uh, nonprofits uh, all do on a regular. Basis, and it was one of the most important pieces uh, of work that I did while I was uh, in the Pentagon. I want to just make a a couple of quick observations before I turn to our panel uh, to make some observations as well. And then I promise we'll save lots of time for the audience uh, to uh, chime in as well. Even though you've heard a lot about climate and security these days, my personal view is uh, climate change and national security is kind of the exclamation point on why we need to deal with climate change. It's not the whole argument. Uh, I think there are some very, very important uh, aspects of implications of climate change for national security, but I, even from a Department of Defense perspective, would not argue that's the only reason or even the main reason. There are so many other reasons that we need to address climate change that are critical. Another thought I would add to this is from the Department of Defense, as we thought about climate change and the effects on national security, we largely focused on adaptation uh, issues. I think that's important. I think that will continue to be important. But I also think it is not sufficient to focus on adaptation issues. In fact, I have a great fear that if we overfocus on adaptation issues, uh, we will get stuck in what I would co- consider a very costly, a very risky reactive process to dealing with climate change and lose any opportunity to deal with climate change in a more proactive, uh, more effective uh, manner. And finally, from the Department of Defense perspective, uh, as you can imagine, we're really good about thinking about the bad things that can happen. But it's important, and we try to make emphasize this as well, particularly from a long-term planning and a strategic perspective, to remember that challenges and opportunities often coexist in the same space. And so we have opportunities when it comes to climate change as well. If we can fully understand these implications and agree on the significance of them, the opportunity to come together at state levels, at uh, sub-state levels, at, in the private sector, across international organizations, is much greater. And so I do think there are uh, great opportunities here as well. We just need to seize them. I think Paris is a Uh, is a shining example of a potential great opportunity uh, that we could seize. So on that note, I'm gonna turn to uh, our panel. You all have great bios of them, so I won't go into great detail uh, on who they are. But I'm gonna start with Sharon Burke, uh, who is a good friend and about the best colleague you could want in a place like the Pentagon, uh, trying to deal with all of the different I don't know what to call it, crazies going on. (laughs) Fun, thank you, uh, in the Pentagon. And she was, at the time, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Operational Energy and is now over at the uh, Center, uh, New America Foundation, uh, also looking at energy issues. And Sharon, would you like to say a few words as we kick off? Sure,
4: thank you. And it's a pleasure to be able to thank you publicly. Um, You know, so much goes on behind the scenes. And when the Secretary of Defense's top strategist takes climate change and energy issues seriously, it makes a big difference. So thank you very much for the pleasure of working with you. Um, and, and Ambassador, on all the very excellent remarks, and I think one of the things you laid out that's really important for us talking on this subject is there's a human security issue here and a national security issue. And they're not always the same. They're not always different. But it's important to understand it in that light that there's a broader range of challenges and threats to human security, and it's appropriate to talk about them in that sense. And it's those migration issues, it's access to energy, access to water. Those are the things that cause instability at a very fundamental level. That is security. It's not necessarily a military issue. And it's important to keep that in mind, that how you address that fabric of risk and threat and insecurity requires a lot of different national tools. Now, on the other hand, there is a genuine national security issue here and a role for militaries. So you don't want to militarize the human security context, but you do want to take stock of the fact that militaries have a role. Militaries are very large institutions in most societies. They're very competent institutions in many societies. They play a very important part. So it's important to understand what their genuine role is. And it has to do with the way they do business and the business they do. And I'm delighted to see the Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Army here. You knew I was going to call you out, Richard Kidd, because the Army's just put out a new strategy uh, for sustainability and security that really sets a good mark on this because it's looking at the Army is a big institution that does a lot of business. How it buys, what it what it buys, how it adapts with all of its you know, huge amount of properties, how it adapts to climate change matters, makes a difference. It's, uh, it, it sets a mark, again, for change and for what adaptation can look like. Um, so that's, the Department of Defense is doing really well on that. But when it comes to what the business is, it gets a little more complicated. So of course, the business is fighting wars and preventing wars. Um, the best thing you can do to cut emissions for climate change is don't go to war. So you got to be realistic about the fact that war is a consuming and, uh, and a, a consumptive and destructive enterprise, no matter what. So first, I commend our diplomats for all you do to keep us out of wars. That's a great climate change strategy for adapting and preventing emissions. However, we are human beings, there's going to be war. How we think about what causes conflict and war, we must, in the way that Dan did, we must take all of these factors into account and understand how, what the new realities are. I think of in terms of new realities, new missions, and new effects. So effects on the built environment, effects on the operating environment are very important for military inst- uh, in organizations. New realities, the way that all of these influences are going to affect geopolitics and also the cryosphere, the Arctic, those are new realities and then new missions. Humanitarian disaster relief missions are military missions. They're core missions for the Department of Defense in the United States. But also what I think of as sort of non-point source conflict that all of these things feed into the fabric of conflict, and that that's where I think, certainly, our Defense Department needs to do a better job, is in understanding how all of these influences end up creating conflict and instability and humanitarian disaster relief missions, and what we need in terms of force posture, so where you put your militaries, force structure, what they look like, what kinds of equipment they have. Are we prepared for this climate-changed world? And that's where I think we in the United States still have some distance to travel. So it's, it's uh, looking at all of the things that you laid out, Ambassador, I think that's sort of the national and human security dimension that I think a lot about.
3: Great. Thank you, Sharon. Next we have Tom Burke, who is the founding director and chairman of E3G, or third generation environmentalism. A great uh, organization that I had an opportunity to work for when I was uh, DASD in uh, DOD, uh, helping to connect us with our European counterparts, uh, both in uh, ministries of defense uh, throughout Europe, but also the EU uh, itself, so that we could collaborate more on climate insecurity uh, and take uh, best practices and lessons learned from each other to improve our work in that area.
5: Tom. Dan, thank you very much for those uh, comments. Um, and let me just pick up exactly, Sharon, where you left off in, I think, very useful distinction between uh, human security and national security as two different avenues to approach the same problem. And, and maybe just to make a, a, an observation which kind of makes the link between those two, which is, is there aren't any hard power solutions to climate change. There's no hard power tool you can use to get the world to get rid of its carbon. But there will really will be hard power consequences if we fail uh, to deal with the problem of climate change. So I think those, we need to use both those avenues to approach it, bearing in mind uh, that thought. I had three other, just as we are starter thoughts at um, uh, that rate. One of them picks up off what the ambassador was saying about migration. Europe has a long history of migration, a long history of dealing with the consequences of uh, a climate that's not very compatible with human interests and human expectations. And one of the, the pieces that's now really big issue for European governments everywhere, and very difficult, is the half million or so people somewhere around the southern eastern eastern coast of the Mediterranean who want to come to Europe. That's at a temperature which is just beginning to approach one. The one thing that's absolutely clear is we move between one and two. Those pressures are going to become much more intense on Europe. Now, when you look at the political consequences of those pressures in Europe, they're partly what's driving the rise of the nationalist populist movements. Why does that matter? Well, it matters for lots of reasons. But in particular, it matters because Mr. Putin sees those movements as opportunities to divide in Europe. So there's a really dangerous uh, uh, opportunity being created for mischief-making in Europe, which will get worse if the climate change continues to drive lots of people into the south and east of uh, uh, the Mediterranean. Uh, A second observation in the same. Context, China has probably got the biggest uh, economy that is really vulnerable to a changing climate. Something, it seems to me, the Chinese government has been aware of actually for longer and in some ways more deeply than most other uh, governments. The Chinese government doesn't need, or certainly doesn't think it needs, uh, a good relationship with America in order to preserve free passage in the South China Sea. But it does understand, as it was shown by the meeting between Obama and Xi, that it needs good relationships with America in order to achieve a climate that will not destroy the Chinese economy. So there's an opportunity side to this as we deal with national security issues uh, to reinforce the idea that we have and a need for common rules to manage a difficult and turbulent world. And climate change presents an opportunity to buttress national security in that respect. And the third comment just again to open up with is there's an old saying about fish rot from their head. Uh, States rot from their cities. Uh, And one of the things that I think is really significant about cities in climate change is their vulnerability. Half the world's population now live in cities three-quarters by the middle of the century. 80% of our growth comes from cities. If you do not maintain food, actually, to put it in the right order, water food, and energy security, you cannot maintain stability in your cities. If you're not able to maintain stabilities in the cities, maintaining the stability of a state gets extremely difficult. All revolutions start in cities, and they're led, as we learned from the French Revolution, uh, by disaffected middle classes, the And that's the vulnerability I see from climate change, as a changing climate puts real pressure on water prices, on food prices. And it uh, uh, makes energy, maintaining energy security, more difficult. Uh, one of the stories that really focused my attention on this recently was a uh, story about an armed gang hijacking a tanker in Sao Paulo. Which, what, what's exceptional about that? Well, the only thing exceptional about that was what was in the tanker. It was water. Uh, And we have not understood the vulnerability of much of the world, and what's more, much of the world on which we depend for our future growth, which is the bottom two quartiles of those urban populations that are vulnerable to the effects of a changing climate. The two hurricanes that hit the Philippines cost about 12.9 billion in uh, dollars in uh, uh, damage. Uninsured damages, by the way. So that's money taken absolutely out of the base of growth. That's money the Filipinos won't be spending on soap or shampoo or uh, uh, sweets. And so we have to understand that this is not a separ- It's not just their security. Our security, because of an interdependent world, is deeply tied up in uh, preserving the security
3: of those cities. Thank you. Great points, Tom. Thank you. Uh, next we have Munir Munir R- I'm sorry yes. I, I, got it right. I do that every time yeah. I, I see you. I apologize. Uh, retired major general from the Bangladesh uh, military, but also uh, chairman of Global Military Advisory Council on uh, Climate Change, uh, Munir, Munir and I had the uh, pleasure of uh, playing a game together in uh, India just uh, a couple of few months ago. Uh, the game, unfortunately, though, was on the effects of climate change on uh, the security environment in the 10, 20, and I think we went 50 and 90 years out, uh, at some point. Uh, and as you can expect, the results were not all that uh, pleasant, but I'm very pleased to see him again. and you're over to you.
6: Thank you. Uh, I'll first uh, start with the game that we played in Delhi. It is uh, It was a climate change war game. And we played on the consequences of eight-year time period. And I can tell with Dan that the consequences and the results that we got from the response of the players were not pretty at all. And now, going back to my previous speaker talking about cities, I also like to point out that, in spite also not on the condition of the stability of the cities, most of our financial centers are extremely vulnerable. Cities like Shanghai, cities like New York, London, all these cities who control our international financials, stock exchanges, and the very sensitive financial institutions are extremely vulnerable. Imagine a major stock exchange being non-functional due to water logging for seven or 10 days can send shockwaves in the international financial system. Similarly, all our ports and the cities are extremely vulnerable because they're in low-lying areas, and any disruption of the major port anywhere in Europe or somewhere else can completely jeopardize and destabilize the supply chain management that we are very much accustomed to. So in terms of the stability of the cities, they're not only vulnerable to the internal stability of the cities themselves, they are extremely sensitive to the international system and it can completely destabilize. I've been often asked what worries me most amongst many of the security consequences of climate change. Coming from that part of the world where I live, one of the biggest consequences that worries me is human displacement and migration. And we have only seen the tip of the iceberg. We are yet to see the real sense of the migration and displacement that can come as a consequence of climate change. Imagine the condition of my own country, Bangladesh, which is one of the frontline countries in the face of climate challenges. According to the IPCC's report, a one meter sea level rise will take out 20% of Bangladesh's landmass to the sea. A country of the size of Bangladesh with a population of 170 million people. So naturally, the National Climate Change Strategy Paper of the government has analyzed and said that if 20% of Bangladesh's land mass is lost to the sea, it will create a climate refugee population of anything between 30 to 35 million people. We have talked about thousands. We have talked about hundred thousands. We have never talked about mass migration of millions of people happening at one time. And if that happens, it cannot only destabilize a particular country, it will destabilize the region with grave consequences to the international security system. Because any country which has created this number of refugees these are also weak and fragile countries, and they don't have the internal capacity to absorb these people. I will touch upon one other point before I hand over to the next speaker. We also not analyze the consequences of countries which will vanish completely. Imagine countries like the Maldives or the number of island states in the Pacific, they will completely disappear. It has not only human consequences to security from the human security dimension. It has grave destabilizing impacts from the international legal system. What will happen to the the water over which they existed once? Will that remain the sovereign national waters, or will that become international water? Imagine a shifting of the baselines will completely jeopardize the maritime boundary regime that we have built on UNCLOS. So we will have a complete destabilized maritime boundary issues in the world. We cannot even solve the South China Sea issues. Imagine we completely destabilize the whole maritime boundary regime of the world. It will destabilize the international system to a degree that we may find it very difficult to manage on a very long-term basis. So therefore, we have consequences from various of these issues, which are not only linear in nature, but they have multiple consequences, or secondary consequences, or, what I call consequences with the consequences. And those are the scenarios that worries me most. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Manu. Last, definitely not least, because I'm pretty sure we just arranged the panel alphabetically, is Dennis Tanzler, uh, formerly from the German Foreign Office and now Director of International Climate Policy uh, at Adelphi. Brexit, yeah, thank
7: you. Um, when I um, read the, the program the other day and um, have the framing with a battleground. I, I just came to my mind um, that this is, of course, not the way, not the narrative I would like to associate with a climate policy approach mm-hmm. uh, to avoid any kind of um, battleground. But in fact, of course, um, and this is basically uh, is the bottom line also of, of um, the uh, approach of my institute is that um, the ca- our carbon footprint um, could not um, uh, define and dictate um, the conditions of peace and stability. And that is the reason that why we have been focusing on the question of climate security for quite some some years now. And I'm, I'm really grateful that the overall importance of adaptation was already mentioned as as one part of this climate um, policy agenda. Um, We are pretty clear that for for the outcome um, of the Paris um, conference at the end of uh, this year, the mitigation question is of utmost importance. Um, But at the same time, um, it's more and more obvious that um, adaptation and also the question of climate finance can be a game changer in order to find global solutions. Um, When we discuss the question of of climate security and uh, especially um, the overall relevance of climate change impacts on fragile contexts, we uh, um, um, have an overall focus on the question how to improve or to strengthen resilience. And that is um, at the heart um, also of a report that we conducted, uh, that we prepared um, uh, um, together with partners here in the United States with the Woodrow Wilson Center, but also International Alert and the EU Institute for Security Studies um, on behalf of the G7 foreign ministers. And I think that um, already tells a story. The G7 foreign ministers ask, what is the overall rationale to talk about climate change and fragility? Um, And as part of this report, this is only the executive summary, but there's a more comprehensive um, report coming out next week, also with the launch event here in DC um, is that we um, be very clear about three main um, elements. First is um, we need a, a sound risk analysis, and we outline that there are basically seven compound risk. and uh, I don't need to repeat what um, um, my, my colleagues already outlined, but it's it's very clear that we are moving, as Sharon said, from human security to the national security. We are talking about lo- uh, local resource competition, uh, livelihood insecurity, um, and, but then we move to Increasing food prices and, and the effects um, um, to um, the question of transboundary water um, tensions in, in, in many um, areas around the world. So this is um, that we that we need to to be have a clear risk analysis here. And then, based on this, we don't, do not need necessarily to reinvent the wheel when we are talking about different policy approaches, for example, on climate change adaptation, for example, when it comes to development and humanitarian uh, assistance, or the overall uh, um, uh, approach of peace building and, and, and conflict prevention. Because all of the three approaches basically aim at resilience, and in order to improve the coping uh, capacities of states and societies and avoid that, we are uh, talking about a more um, fragile uh, world with, with more violence and, and, and conflict. And that is the reason that we, uh, uh, at the end of the report, that we are asking um, resilience to um, um, get the new compass Um, basically of foreign policies, because we need an integration of all these different approaches, meaning that um, we need to apply a fragility lens when we are defining and implementing climate uh, change policies, for example. Or, to give another example, that we ensure um, that uh, those um, uh, um, actors in, in fragile areas are able to use also climate finance Um, in in a way, of course, in an accountable and transparent way, but to use it to get access to it um, in order to ensure that we are not talking
3: about a battleground in the future. Mm -hmm. Those are great points. Thank you, everyone. And uh, maybe we'll discuss for just a a minute, because I do have a couple questions, and then uh, go to the audience uh, for some question and answers uh, as well. Something that's come up at. I wanted to say implicitly, but I think actually explicitly from a, from a number of you is this uh, concern with militarization uh, of this issue, and I think it's something that's worth uh, discussing. We've talked about uh, the difference between human security and national security or military defense security uh, issues. I think we can recognize there are uh, overlapping uh, issues there as well, but there certainly is a great deal of concern and sensitivity with regard to militarization. And for me, it comes out in, in two different ways. Uh, One was an interesting result of actually uh, an event that I participated in with uh, E3G uh, in Europe, uh, talking to uh, European partners uh, about uh, the concern DOD had, U.S. DOD had, uh, with climate change. And I got a very, uh, I thought, surprisingly hostile reaction from folks uh, there. when I asked why uh, they were unhappy with us looking at this issue, their answer was, we think you're militarizing uh, this issue. Uh, And then their answer further was, uh, we think the military is trying to take away all the good money that's going after climate change uh, and take it to the military. Uh, Ironically, living inside the Beltway and the the echo chamber that you heard about uh, earlier, uh, my response was, uh, normally when I talk about climate change in DOD, somebody takes my money away, uh, doesn't actually uh, uh, bring any money. But this concern, certainly across national borders, it's a very different debate here in the United States as we know than it is in Europe, about militarization of climate change and how we emphasize the importance of the issue we're talking about here, the nexus between climate change and, and national security, without raising those concerns about militarization. Uh, is thought number one that I'd be interested in your your comments on. And then the other is, again, just to reiterate, and I'd, I'd be happy if somebody would tell me I'm just being uh, overly worried about this, is the concern I have, and it's somewhat related to the first point, of an overemphasis on adaptation. So I do worry, again, living inside the beltway, I'm using that as a precondition for many of my comments here, that we will become overly reliant. We will say adaptation, yes, got that. We'll try and fix things in the near term, and we'll continue to push off the longer term uh, issues. At some point, we'll find ourselves unable to continue to adapt uh, and still facing the uh, longer-term issues. Dennis, do you want to chime in on any of those? Um, yeah, maybe on the on the latter point, um, um, when we um,
7: came up with our first study on this climate change and conflict um, um, over a decade ago as part of the climate negotiations, um, yeah. they um, told us basically, oh, uh, please do not focus on adaptation because we have a strong mitigation um, right. message that we need to fulfill. And, Yes, that's correct. Um, of course, mitigation is um, um, the first and foremost priority. But um, we already see that there are some uh, unavoidable climate um, change um, trends. And, and so I um, would say that um, um, there's a place and there need to be place for, for, for both, um, basically. And I um, would also see um, in um, that we with, with different um, efforts to um, Im- improve, or uh, to strengthen resilience um, in the field of, uh, let's say, for example, humanitarian assistance, but also when we talk about um, um, peace-building processes, that they are, we, we refer to a key um, strategy and planning processes and that um, include um, the, the um, overall requirements of adaptation there is of um, simply something that is um, um, uh, a key priority on the one hand and it's not only a technical issue, it's not only to, to let's say to um, discuss um, how we can increase dance or, or strengthen them um, but it's um, um, a political question mm-hmm. because it, it, it asks um, for um, an increased coordination especially in, in um, um, uh, basically in vulnerable states that normally have not the uh, state capacity to really um, be able to coordinate um, sufficiently um, and it's the same um, for us as uh, let's say um, not the most vulnerable or with, with a stronger Coping capacity. Um, um, when we have a look on the on the G7 uh, nations, for example, that um, uh, one of the pri- priorities needs to be um, to um, um, do the homework and also to improve coordination when it comes to the different actors in uh, in our, our governments. So uh, I would not see that um, um, this is um, adaptation uh, only something um, that that um, um, uh, reduces the attention towards mitigation.
3: Sure, Tom. Did you want to jump in?
5: Yeah, I think this whole area is redolent with false choices. Hmm. Uh, and you want to be really careful, just like, is it human, human security or uh, national security? It's both. They interact with each other. You can't maintain national security if you don't maintain human security, especially in an urbanized world. Uh, so you want to avoid the false choice. Uh, uh, there's a really important piece. If we don't deal with the need to adapt, then we collapse our capability to mitigate. We don't have a static capability to mitigate. Uh, you intensify, intensify the, the, the problem, the perennial public policy problem, of the difference between the immediate and the urgent. Uh, and uh, the tendency always, especially in a media-rich world, to always focus on the immediate, if only for a day or two. Uh, and to actually leave out the urgent, which is complex, difficult, hard to explain. So there's a real challenge to political leadership not to take us into a position where we're choosing between uh, um, uh, adaptation and mitigation. Uh, Inevitably, in any bureaucracy, everybody will bargain. That's what bureaucracies do for money to do their thing. So look, I'm focused on the challenge getting politicians into the right place on that issue and not to get into this temptation of, of making false choices. And I'm, I was shocked by the reaction you got in Europe. Because the idea that you're, because you're talking about the fact that there are hard power consequences, and actually some of the, the, the institutions that think best in the future, uh, about the future, in all our, our countries are the military. They think best because they have to deal with Hard consequences, and they think systematically and hard about it. Nobody else does that. So I, I, it shocked me that there was that reaction, because it frankly is a very dumb reaction. It got, it got to better,
3: the problem. It got better to, as we discussed further. I when I get, uh, yeah.
6: sorry. What I think adaptation is useful, but adaptation is also a sort of a tool by some people to isolate the problem, to insulate the problem. Adaptation can go up to a limit, but adaptation is not a, the, the solution to the problem. In many of the cases, the most vulnerable states, the capacity of the adaptation is limited, Small. and even if they adopt, they can go up to a subtle level. I can tell you this, that this is a very interconnected problem in a very interconnected world, and nobody can be isolated. If any country thinks that we can give money and adopt people in a remote area, and I can remain safe, that is a very false strategy. and uh, the. Very submission to the issue is that these are very global problems, and we'll have to have global solutions. And adaptation can be a very stopgap strategy to a very long-term strategy that we should have. Adaptation is also very popular with politicians who look up only to the next elections in five years, so they want to solve it on a temporary basis. But there are no temporary solutions to the problem. We have to go the hard way to have long-term solutions to the problem. For example, I come back again to the issue of migration. The ambassador said there were migration problems in the 17th century. But today, we live in a very Westphalian state system where we have built complete walls amongst ourselves. So any sort of human adjustment is not possible unless we have international agreements to the movement of people and displacement of people. So these are very complex issues, and we'll have to have very complex answers to these problems. On the issue of the militarization, as a soldier, I can tell you that this is a problem that cannot be solved by the military. At the same time, the military is a very important tool in the hands of the states, particularly for weak and vulnerable states to whom the military is a very big asset. Therefore, the military will have to be involved in the response mechanism to the consequences and impacts of climate change be it a small state, a weak state, or a big and a powerful state. So all militaries will have to be assigned roles. The military is a very large, efficient, and a complex machine. They cannot be plugged in at the very last moment. They have to be given, given a mission, they have to be trained, they have to be tooled, so that when the need comes, the military can be assigned the proper mission to reach at the consequence management of climate change conditions. So therefore, it is the bringing the military into the game is not the process of militarization, but making the best use of the assets in the hands of the states. Sure.
4: Yeah. I had two thoughts. One was, you know, when you're listening to you talk about this is a global problem and it requires global solutions, couldn't agree more. But I think one of the big problems is, but it's experienced locally. Yeah. And, and we got to make sure, like you said, Tom, that we don't pit these things against each other. Because otherwise, I know what's going to happen here which is when we are told Bangladesh has a much bigger problem than you have, which I agree readily to, I'm not going to be able to take dollars away from Sandy Relief. You know, We're still going to have to deal with it, all of us, at our local level. And I think that that's why what Dennis is saying is so important. We have to make a radical investment in resilience globally, because otherwise, this becomes an insurmountable (laughs) set of trade-offs. So I think that's really important. And on the militarization, I completely agree with you. The danger in militarization, though, I think is, is, it's important for people to understand. It's too, too, I mean, it's simplification, but too broad things. Um, in the United States, we're used to the fact that our civil military relations are very healthy and that we have a lot of confidence in our uniform military in that sense as, a, as an apolitical actor. That is not true in much of the world, and if you start assigning a civil, What's fundamentally an economic and civil responsibility to your military, that's a slippery slope in a lot of countries where there may not be a lot of confidence in the military to play that part. So that's a problematic thing that I think is unfamiliar for a yep. lot of Americans. Yep. Uh, on the other hand, our own military is you know its primary mission. It has a lot of missions, but its primary mission is to fight and win wars. And that requires a very you know special set of skills and training and equipment that takes decades to build. And the, the civil functions of building resilience, um, of, of building civil society, of cutting greenhouse gas emissions, um, that's not what our military is yeah. optimized for. Oh, sure. And so you run two risks. It's not your most optimal tool for that mission. And also you blunt the tool for what yeah. you do need it for. Yeah. And that's a real danger there. The problem for Americans is that we're underinvested in our other tools of economic statecraft. And you know, the, we, we don't, as a, as a polity, do a good job at investing in our other tools of state power. And so we tend to over-rely on our military because it's good and because we can. Um, so, I mean, for us, it's a complicated challenge, I think.
3: Yeah, those are those are really good points. And raise uh, the last question I wanted to ask the, the group here before we go to the audience is, so we've talked a lot about, and the ambassador led off in his discussions about how you can't address climate change just at the state-to-state uh, level. You really need to think about that whole range of actors. And we've talked a little bit about that here as well in this area of uh, climate and security, are there some opportunities to reach out? So, we, DOD thinks about reaching out to other MODs and DODs uh, all the time, uh, and to large international alliances and organizations. Are there some other opportunities, again, with a, uh, an eye towards concerns of militarization, uh, that from a security standpoint, we can engage not just at the state level, but engage a wider range of uh, stakeholders uh, as well? Any thoughts on that, Dennis?
7: Yeah, I think um, the the overall relevance of, of cities was um, um, already mm-hmm. mentioned. Of, of course, there are a number of, of, of uh, city-to-city networks already existing, mm-hmm. with, with large city um, networks, but but also um, um, more at the, at a community level. I think also that um, to to. Um, uh, for, for governments to bring, bring up what, what is their existing uh, um, as experience from the local level on resilience building to the, to the international level um, will be um, one of the key key efforts um, where governments need to um, in, in, engage in. Uh, just to give one example, there's currently an ongoing uh, process by, uh, supported by USAID AID in Ethiopia to, to uh, um, build, uh, build up so-called peace centers in order to um, tackle the question of climate change mm-hmm. adaptation with, uh, the, together with um, um, as a major subject when it comes to um, resource competition, and this is um, already one one example where you try to integrate and um, to uh, move beyond uh, the normal sectoral um, isolated approaches. And then, if, if this is going to be successful, there is a need to um, use this example and, and to bring it to other um, areas as well. So that we need a translation, and therefore um, um, governments needs and, and can. Um, uh, engage. Great. Good. Tom?
5: Well, very much picking up on the point of, of cities, and we've got to have a rather more sophisticated conceptualization of national security than simply about interstate relationships. Uh, uh, the problem of failing states is a problem about internal security more, and you, the cities are the places where you could begin to organize. David Kilcullen has written very interestingly about this in in Out of the Mountains. And what I found quite striking is his focus on how you do that is you have to build community, and therefore you look for projects the output of which is not just whatever the project output is, but the fact you can get people to work together on. Well, building and. Climate resilient energy system, a low carbon energy system, is enormously about doing things, and can be enormously about doing things at a community level. Particularly as you look mm-hmm. for electricity in countries that don't have grids, there's an enormous opportunity to think very strategically about the project of building a distributed energy system being part of creating that intrastate
3: security by building community. Right, and again, seeing opportunity in yeah. some of these challenges. Yeah, yeah absolutely, Sharon. Uh,
4: just. You know it's interesting um, when you work inside a really large institution like the Pentagon, I think it almost is on its its own time zone you know and like it's slower than the rest of the world so emerging out into the sunlight, what you know was surprised to discover that the world kept moving while we were in there, <laughs> and that cities and states in this country um, are actually dealing with this problem they're not waiting to be given permission mm, yeah. by the u s Congress because they don't have that luxury they' got to fill potholes they they have to prevent floods from being devastating. If that 100-year flood is coming every five years now, they have to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So it's been really eye-opening, I think, to come out and realize that the country is, on some level, dispensed with the political debate that continues and is just dealing with the the challenge.
5: Can I add a rider to that point, which I very much agree with? It's, It's that it's not going to be enough for the cities to do what they can. They're going to have to project much more effectively political power at the national level. Because this is a vertically integrated problem as well as a horizontally integrated problem. Completely I
4: completely mean. agree. Yeah, California has fabulous targets, yes. but this problem crosses their borders. Well,
5: and, and frankly, if, this, if we go Going from one to two is going to be difficult. Going beyond two, you're going to overwhelm all those local efforts. So you really need to see that as part of the strategy. And what the cities have going for them is they have more legitimacy in the eyes of the public than the national governments do. And that's pretty true around the world. So there's an opportunity to mobilize the base of society politically to reach to the national level that's much harder for national
3: governments to achieve. And your last word before we open it up. Uh,
6: One thing I want to inject in this discussion here is that we haven't talked about the demographic size of the explosion that the world is going to experience. We are already at 6 billion world. People are talking about a 9 billion world. People are talking about a 12 billion world. So much of the consequences of the impacts that we are now describing here are going to be magnified many times as that the world experiences that kind of a demographic expansion or an explosion. So therefore, we have to have those kind of foresight planning so that the consequences are going to magnify the coming years. In terms of opportunity, I see that there are opportunities for international coal- coalitions of cooperation, particularly in the fields of disaster management on HIDR that are taking place. I see tremendous opportunities in the field of innovation, for example. So there are countries that are innovating in a manner that they had not experienced ever before. There are also opportunities in terms of bringing back some of the traditional knowledge back into our fold again, something that we had ignored for many years, and we are now finding that many of those traditional knowledge that we had are of tremendous use in dealing with uh, climate-induced conditions and the consequences. So there are opportunities provided we can understand them and manage them well and make the best use of them. I would also like to say that uh, many of the security impacts of climate change are not linear. So therefore, we sometimes are unable to understand the consequence as it happens. It has multidimensional impacts, and many of those impacts are so subtle in nature that we only come to understand them when they're right directly on our face. Therefore, this is a complex consequence battle. We have to understand, understand them pretty early so that we have the capacity for the consequent management that is necessary.
3: All right, let's open it up to questions from the audience. We have some very fast and diligent mic runners here who will get you a microphone. Uh, I'm going to ask you to please identify yourself in your affiliation if you wouldn't mind uh, and keep your questions brief. We'll start in the back on the side here. <coughs>
4: Thank you so much. Uh, My name is Spencer Schecht with American University and Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, So, even if we get an amazing, all inclusive, robust, and flexible, and ambitious deal in Paris at the end of this year, it still takes five years until it goes into effect. So, how do we deal with these issues in the next five years? Good.
3: Anyone want to jump in? Go Go ahead, Dennis. Yeah.
7: I guess one one of the the results of the Copenhagen uh, summit in in 2009 was was basically that we are not able to wait for a global deal and and um, uh, um, just take a wait and see strategy and um, that for the overall climate change regime, I guess it's fair to say that um, there's a learning curve and that there are different bits and pieces, like climate finance, for example, but also what we have been discussing on adaptation, where you have have ongoing processes. Um, And um, of course, it's a very important um, signal to come from from Paris, but on the other hand, for example, taking the example of climate finance, the Green uh, Climate Fund as an institution is going to do its work. So um, the, that means um, we, um, of course, wait for this Paris um, outcome, and it needs to be ambitious. But on the other hand, um, the overall activities in, in different um, fields related to climate policies are ongoing and, and will also um, um, go on and continue, even if um, what, we, um, what we do not um, can allow it. And in a way um, even if Paris would be a failure. We, we need to um, go on with these kind of processes. Menier? Uh
6: What I want to say is that even Paris succeeds to our full expectations, many of the consequences are irreversible. And many of the societies and countries are beyond mitigation now. Even if we mitigate to the maximum, many of the consequences that we are talking here are going to happen in many countries, particularly in the vulnerable countries and, and the weak countries. Therefore, we must be prepared for some of the consequences on the security impacts of climate change that we identify now because they're way beyond mitigation, they're way beyond negotiations now.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Tom? Yeah, I, I don't get over fixated on the text. What matters is the direction of travel and the signal, and what, what I think we're seeing is a clear signal that governments are going to do something. Not enough, uh, but something. Uh, Two things will fill that space as you go around the sort of uh, bits of the ratchet. One is events. Uh, Knowledge is not driving the politics of climate change anymore. What's driving it is real things that happen in the real world uh, uh, that are difficult to deal with. The, the second thing that's happening is there are a huge number of opportunity seekers out there who are not waiting for, uh, to be told to do something about building a low-carbon economy. They're called Elon Musk, and they're going to become Bill Gates from building a, a low-carbon economy. And that driver is going on. And as those two things drive forward, the political risk equation for governments gets lower. And that makes it easier for them to act. So you're going to see a much more complex ratchet than you would see simply by looking at the text and uh, uh, the way the text changes over time.
3: I think we've got a question in the front here.
8: Oh, thank, you. Uh, thank you very much for a very rich discussion. I'm Paula Stern. I'm uh, on the Atlantic Council Executive Committee and uh, actually on the Renewable Energy uh, Advisory Committee to the Secretary of Commerce. Um, and my question, and I'm so glad you talked about the, uh, the economy here, the low carbon economy, because what this discussion has been about military and security, I and mean, I see our de- Department of Defense and potentially other uh, military institutions, as you said, the, as being able um, and, and, and um, capable of, of responding. But I also see in the United States that uh, through DARPA, through uh, procurement, um, uh, vast amounts of uh, procurement capabilities, that the the Defense Department in particular has been out in front for an innovation economy that is low carbon. And so I I would like you to, um, if you will, address um, more the, the, the issues of the tool called the Department of Defense or, and maybe the other national labs um, in assuring that um, we have uh, uh, the kind of responses that are, are needed. If you would just kind of connect the economic uh, role the Defense Department has played in the past from, from a, uh, finding new technologies um, and getting out in front is DARPA now as part of its mission for example having the fact that they need to be uh, 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 avoiding technological surprise in uh, the new economy that will have to be low carbon is that is that consciously integrated?
3: Yeah, that's not only right up Sharon's <laughs> alley. No, I, I give Sharon no, 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 I give Sharon great credit, frankly, for encouraging Crazy a lot question. of the innovation that you're uh, talking about uh, on uh, during her tenure. so
4: it's it's a great question, and that was what what Congress directed the department to set up an office specifically to do that. and um, and that was was my privilege to run the office. So, but I'll tell you there's, there's two answers. There's more than one answer to that question. And one is that, again, it comes to the way the department does business. It's a very large business. You know, it's a $500 to $700 billion budget, depending on how you count, two to three million person workforce, global presence. So how it does business, how it buys things, as you pointed out, makes a difference. And, and so uh, there's, there's the category of how we buy energy for our sort of our facilities, so our, our, our steady state. And um, the department has lots of um, executive orders and laws and targets that are set in that area and lots of tools they can use to be Mm -hmm. innovative, like energy savings performance contracts and enhanced use leases. And so there's some really great work that goes on there to put renewable energy and energy efficiency at at U.S. military bases around the world. Where it gets more interesting, um, at least to me, sorry, Richard, (laughs) Um, although this is right up your alley as well, Mm-hmm. Um, is, is in the, the way the missions and the way the department operates because it's a major consumer of fuel there as well. Um, so, you know, somewhere around 4 billion gallons last year the department consumed in running military missions. And this is where the real innovative power of the Department of Defense has always lain. So when you look at the things that people like to think about, like the Internet and GPS, that were primarily started as military technologies, they were to solve a military problem. And when you're solving a military challenge, there's tremendous innovative power there. It has its limits. There won't necessarily be a civilian application. Like we love GPS, but there's not a lot of stealth technology in the civilian world, right? (laughs) So there's no guarantee that it crosses over. But that's what we were looking for, was that sweet spot where to solve a military challenge, you need energy innovation. So we were looking at tactical solar for remote outposts. And and the Army, bless them, got it out there to the soldiers who were in dangerous places that were hard to deliver fuel to, and they go through a lot of fuel even if they're not driving. Um, So things like tactical solar, uh, efficient shelters, but then also efficient engines uh, running off of other kinds of energy where you can. Um, you know, we're talking about a military that's got long, long supply lines that are very vulnerable. How do you cut that vulnerability? And energy innovation has great uh, range for doing that. DARPA does not right now have an explicit energy program, uh-huh. but what they are looking at is, for example, is unmanned systems that are using solar, um, mm-hmm. because that gives you a military return on the investment. You get more range, you get more f- staying time in the air. It's quiet. It doesn't have what we call a military signature. You can't see it, right? And all of a sudden, that becomes a military innovation, but it's also an energy innovation, because they'll really have to push the pace Mm -hmm. on solar to get what they want out of it. So DARPA does have um, also some energy storage technologies and other things that are implicit in other military technologies. I personally think that's the way to go. That's how DOD innovates best, and so that's what we were trying to do exactly.
3: Thank you so much. We have another question up here. Senator, welcome, thank you for joining us.
9: Uh, John Warner with the Pew Charitable Trust. Uh, I have uh, been privileged to follow the issue of climate change for a number of years. And uh, I think the forthcoming Paris Conference has the potential to begin to move the base of public opinion in our country in a positive way. I was privileged yesterday to be in a meeting with Dr. Holdren, the President's scientific advisor, and he likewise feels that this can be a positive event. And so I bring, uh, particularly to you, Secretary Burke, uh, the question, uh, what is it, or Mr., Dr. what is the administration doing uh, to try and frame in the legislative arena, a positive reaction and perhaps a participatory support of this important conference that's coming up to further foster the President's uh, really major strides in in climate change. Sharon You want to
3: start? Uh,
4: (laughs) Senator, you, as always, uh, are a great leader with a um, You know how to ask a stiletto question for sure, always. (laughs) Um, I I do not know exactly what the administration is doing right now to work with the Congress. Um, I'm certain that they are engaging in a lot of efforts. I wish them good luck on that. I do not believe that this Congress is all that receptive on the issue. But I think, you know, um, there are, uh, and and I know there are people in the audience, by the way, that are intimately engaged in that effort. Um, And if you know more about it, by all means, speak up. But I will say one thing that really struck me is that um, while I would encourage the administration to work intimately and extensively to engage Congress, I would also say don't wait for it. Um, You know, when the announcement came out of a bilateral deal between the United States and China on, on climate change, it was sort of a black swan diplomacy moment. You know, people didn't see it coming, which is not easy to accomplish in this day and age. And I'm sure that there were members of Congress who felt ambushed. And at the time, my first reaction was, wow, Will this cause us to lose more ground on the Hill? And then I thought, you know what? We have a president who's acting like he cares about this, like this is real. And he really believes it. And he has to do something about it and not wait. So by all means, I think they should try to find the, the receptivity in Congress. And I think resilience is one area in particular where we can all come together and, and agree on investments. Um, but at the same time, I don't think they should wait.
3: So I'll just add a a couple of points from my perspective. And again, thank you, Senator, not only for your continued interest and strong support uh, for this work, uh, but I, I think the question is critical because uh, I can make jokes about the inside the beltway uh, environment, but we know in the United States if we can't get Congress to move, uh, we're gonna have some real obstacles to making uh, progress in this area. So again, there are some folks uh, in the audience who uh, are probably directly involved in this. I won't put them on the spot, but if they'd like to chime in they're certainly welcome to. There are also some folks in the audience from a uh, non-profit perspective uh, who are working to try and uh, improve bipartisan uh, agreement, at least on some issues. They mostly focus on resilience and adaptation, which I think is positive again. But I'll say again, I just worry if we over focus on that, we'll miss the larger piece. Uh, I completely agree with you, Paris is a real opportunity. The two small areas that, uh, while I was in government, that I tried to contribute uh, for the administration to convincing Congress was, number one, this piece on emphasizing this nexus between climate change and security, to really emphasize the importance of this. This was not an issue that Congress could or should ignore because it has some kind of fluffy implications that they don't uh, see yet and won't see for some time. These are issues that we need to confront today and that we really see getting worse and uh, really affecting our national security the future. So that was approach number one. Approach number two was very much, and again, it's been discussed here already, is to say, And by the way, it's not just DOD doing this. Let's look at all the private sector entities that are doing this on a day-to-day basis, whether it's near-term adaptations with their own facilities and installation, whether it's long-term projections uh, as the insurance companies are doing for these sorts of things. And let's look at the cities and states and what they're doing uh, as well. And by trying to bring that all together, hopefully finding some areas of common agreement uh, in Congress uh, to move forward. Uh, the other thing, and just last thought on, on this is, uh, and uh, we did try and show, as, as uh, Sharon was alluding to earlier, very much an administration that was willing to stand up and speak about this, uh, from the Department of Defense to the White House to the State Department to others, uh, all willing to stand up uh, and speak about this because we felt it was uh, it was important to. Uh, I can't remember who coined this phrase, but we thought it was, was helpful to really get it uh, back the issue back in the light. Uh, and uh, really be able to have a substantive uh, dialogue uh, about this. If we could this. break the
4: fourth wall, though, I'd kind of like to ask you that question because I mean, I consider it just it, uh, something that, that keeps me up at night, that this is such a political issue in our country, and how can we get past that? What do you think? I mean, do you think there's room for, for the administration to work with Congress? You would know better than anyone else would. Well,
9: I'd simply observe, quite correctly, you made the observation Nobody's waiting for Congress. The cities, the communities are moving out on their own initially. But my concern is you've got a potentially powerful Congress, and let's put it, all of us have been to Paris. It has a certain charm that they'll seize, and dwell <laughs> on that, and try and erase some of the positive gains by virtue of educating our people in the, importance of the world, Connectivity with the rest of the world, as you point out to me. Because who would be
6: the first to respond to a Bangladesh problem? An aircraft carrier. Yeah, yeah. Water. Absolutely. And absolutely. I just might mention here an That's issue great. that we did not touch again, naturally, many issues come, is human health and disease. Human security probably will be one of the basic frontline issues that we have to face. And again, in an interconnected world, a breakdown of hygiene and human health anywhere will have direct consequences in matters of ours, in terms of travel, in terms of movement, in terms of everything. So a epidemic in a very faraway world can turn into a pandemic in matters of days that has global consequences. So these are the various issues that we have to deal with.
3: Yeah, we're almost at the end of our time. Dan, there were I, a couple of questions. I'll, I'll let you sorry, speak okay, in, a, in a second. Yeah, no let problem. me see if I can do two more questions from the audience, one and two. Uh, and uh, if you could just very briefly state your, state your questions, and then I'll let the panel very quickly wrap up. Uh, uh, Brian Beery, Washington correspondent for Euro I'm politics. sorry, could you say that again, please? Brian Beery, Washington correspondent for Europolitics. politics. Um, on climate refugees, do you think there should be anything in the uh, Paris agreement on that, and what should it say? Let's take the other question first.
0: Uh, Thank you very much. Lauren Hershey, semi-retired attorney, formerly with the Justice Department. Uh, I wonder, do you have an easy way for the general public to read the results of all of these efforts with some kind of a dashboard instrument that will tell us whether we're making progress or not? Abstractly, we understand the challenge. Conceptually, we understand the challenge understand there's a top-down and a bottom-up, but how do you get publics in your corner doing the right thing, as Senator Warner referred to, comes from the cities, comes from the states, it comes from the people, but how can we evaluate the
3: progress? Sounds good. Okay, let's quickly go go through. Tom, I'll start with you. Well, thank you.
5: I, I just wanted to pick up on the Senator's a uh, question in from outside and not having to worry about how you actually do it, uh, and observe that Winston Churchill, who had an American mother, uh, once commented that you could always count an American to do the right thing, but only after it had explored every other opportunity. And my view is America's going through that enormously elaborate process of exploring all the other opportunities, but I don't think the world should worry. Is, is my, now? there's an issue of timing and all the rest of it. But you look at what's happening across the country, as opposed to in Washington, and you don't see anything that would lead you to doubt that America will get there. And it's a bit of a stimulus. There are about 80 countries around the world that have climate legislation. This is an interesting situation where America's behind the rest of the world instead of ahead in not having climate legislation. You know, and that's a kind of spur, at least to some people who see all politics as a sport, to, to get with the, with the program. Um, I don't really have an answer to your question on on refugees. I hadn't thought about it, so somebody else hopefully will be able to say something about that. I don't think there's any problem with the public understanding it, and the Pew research and a lot of other research shows that. There's a terrible problem everywhere with the way the media present the issue. Uh, And I think one needs to think very hard about how that problem is dealt with.
6: Uh, I don't think there will be anything uh, done about this in Paris, because this is one of the most untouchable issues that nobody wants to touch upon, on the issue of refugees. Uh, Also go back to the understanding that we have internationally (coughs) legally accepted definitions of all other kinds of refugees, but no definition for environmental or climate refugees. So this is an issue we have deliberately shunned, and I must say and accept that as an member of the international community, we are all in a state of denial. And state of denial can be very expensive when the <laughs> issue ex- exactly explodes. So I don't think anybody is going to touch upon this issue in Paris. I was in Bonn last week in the climate conference, and I saw this is an issue which is a non-issue. Dennis, quick thought?
7: Maybe um, to the also very difficult question on what, how can we uh, come up with let's say, an indicator what, what, is, what kind of progress um, we, we are going to make. I think with, with um, the most recent uh, discussion on, on uh, fully decarbonization and at the G7 summit, at least, um, again, we have something on, on the table where we can see there's an overall target, a long-term target, and we can have our carbon bill every year as, an, as a nation in, in order to see what is going to happen. Um, 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 with in, in terms of progress. Um, and the flip side of this is when we are talking about energy independence, um, and that is at least a, properly a, a very German approach at, at the very moment, is uh, to see how we can increase the share of um, renewable energies and, of course, energy efficiency improvement and, and have this also as part of our overall bill and, and try to tackle it in this way and, and to figure out what kind of progress we are making. Sharon, last quick word.
4: I really like the question about the dashboard, because I think that aggregation of information and making sure people understand both the effects and how they're doing on dealing with it is really important. And I'm, I personally like I'm getting involved with something called the Foresight Initiative, which is a partnership between Arizona State University, the National Geospatial Agency, and several national labs to use mathematical modeling and simulation tools to bring together all the effects, and all of the solutions and to test them and model them. And I think tools like that give you a really good way that the Department of Defense uses, by the way, extensively um, to analyze various policy solutions and various uh, and, and how you're doing. So I think there's a lot of room for exactly that, for doing a better job of aggregating information. Mm-hmm.
3: So, on behalf of Ambassador Morningstar and the Global Energy uh, Center here at the Ananda Council, let me thank you all very much for joining us here uh, and sticking with us through this great discussion. Let me also thank uh, Cezanne, who most of you probably know because she's the one who helped uh, set this meeting up and the great staff who kept uh, uh, everything running. And thank you for me uh, as well. I really appreciate the opportunity. I feel very, very strongly about this. I did when I was at the Pentagon. I do now that I'm out of the Pentagon. Uh, and I look forward to seeing many of you again at these events uh, so that we continue to press on this. Center